I think we all have the ability to make films. We should make a movie with whatever means we have. Doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter the camera, just shoot something so you know if it's for you. And if it is for you, find a way to do it your way. And I think anyone can build a career as a filmmaker if they have that long-term mentality. Welcome to the Spencer Whiteout Podcast. I'll give you a kiss, you give me your number. I checked out a ton, dude. Tell me you felt. We're Americans. We're the ones that are descendants from the 1776 musket bearing So stoked to welcome Noam Kroll to the podcast. Noam is an independent filmmaker whose podcast and blog have been huge inspirations to me over the years. I, along with Andrew Bear and Alex Volman, were fortunate to have been guests on Noam's podcast. We talked all about our adventures creating the cult classic film, Space Waves. If you want to check out that episode, look up Show Don't Tell podcast on Apple or Spotify, and it's the episode published October 20th, 2022. And without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Noam Kroll. Well, welcome, Noam. Thanks for coming on my podcast, dude. You've been such a source of inspiration to me and practical wisdom over the years. So it really is an honor to have you on. Appreciate it. And likewise, thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to talk shop and also do it in a different context. It's not just, you know, a usual exclusive filmmaking podcast. So, yeah, this should be fun. Yeah. So I wanted to go through your film career and hear about a lot of the highs and lows, but I want to focus on first early years and hear about like, where'd you grow up and what got you into filmmaking? Yeah. So I grew up in Canada, actually. So I'm from Toronto originally. I guess I got into filmmaking just out of an interest in movies. Like a lot of kids, I was just into movies. I remember like one of the first movies I saw where I said like, I want to get into film was when I was like 10 and I saw Ace Ventura and then I became obsessed with Jim Carrey. And for a while, I thought maybe I'd want to be an actor or like a stand-up comedian when I was 13. It's weird now because like I have no desire to do a lot, of, especially like stand-up comedy. But when I was like 13, I did like open mic nights. And then I started acting. I got into little commercials and TV movies and things like that. And I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that I loved watching movies. And the idea that you could make a movie you know, not necessarily from like a business or career standpoint, just as a, a creative thing was like, that was the coolest thing. So I was always really into it, but I never, yeah, I didn't really understand because I grew up in a city where, yeah, there are some productions and things, but it's not like LA where everyone you know is a writer, director or whatever. So I very much just sort of figured out over the years by experimenting and you know, filming things and trying different things. I keep leaning toward filmmaking. Like every class project that I do, I'm filming. Like on the weekends, I'm skateboarding with my friends and like filming skateboarding videos. And then I'm going to the concert, but I'm really shooting like a music video. And then over the years, I just realized like even acting and stuff, it was just like, I wanted to be on set. I wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes. And I didn't even know like there was a director of a movie, you know, I just thought, 
actors kind of made it up or whatever. It was just, yeah, I didn't <laughs> think about it. So it just started from like that point of just curiosity of like, how do you make a movie and, and how can I touch that process in some way? And then over the years, like that experimentation kind of became more and more focused into what I'm doing now, I guess, and having a little bit more of a definition around like what I'm actually doing. But in a lot of ways, it's still that mentality of the beginning of like, I'm just trying to have fun and mess around and whatever comes of it, comes of it kind of thing. Yeah. And you like to use the umbrella term of filmmaker now, right? No more just calling yourself a director. Yeah. Like, I mean, because that's the truth is like, that's what I am. And I appreciate you brought that up because I wrote something about this recently, I think on my newsletter or Twitter or something. And I was talking about how like, I think the labels that we give ourselves can be problematic. That's something I've thought about for a long time. And I've heard so many other creatives talk about this and for a good reason, because there's this thing that happens when we label ourselves. Like if I just say I'm a director, that's my job. And like my ego is telling me that that's who I am. Then my mind just closes itself off to all these possibilities. Like the movie I made last year for $6,000 with no crew was like run and gun. And now it's led to all these other really great opportunities. But I never would have probably done that movie if I thought of myself as like, I'm strictly a director and therefore I shouldn't be operating my own camera or doing something low budget. I should be working with some producer to raise a bunch of money and do it the more traditional way. But now it's like, I'm a filmmaker. I'm just making films ironically like the less I put pressure on any of those things to succeed like the more success I have let's say landing directing jobs because I'm not looking for them I don't need them I'm just doing the things that would naturally lead to those opportunities and I'm sticking with them because I'm approaching them from the right place so yeah, I mean, I, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, that's epic. And uh, I also love that you mentioned skateboarding because that was part of my upbringing as well as like making skateboarding videos and then, yeah, going to concerts and filming and just always bringing the camera everywhere. And for me, when I got a camera, well, I was actually using my mom's like little digital camera. When I found that, I just started making videos of anything and everything. And it was like the funnest thing to film something and then watch it back and then be like, oh, well, we could change it or we could do this or that. And um, I want to know what your first camera was. Yeah. So exact same scenario as yours. Like the first thing I ever probably used to film anything on was when I was like seven years old or something. And my brother uh, would take my dad's VHS camcorder from his office. We'd bring it home and film like little movies together and stuff like that. And then that's like the first memory of like using a camera I have was this old like 80s VHS camera that was still laying around. <laughs> and then eventually we got this like Panasonic, I can't remember the model number, but it was just this little like high eight camcorder that I would bring, you know, as a kid at like 11 years old, we'd go to Disney World or whatever. And I was like, I have to film like, I'm not going to get to go back for like at least a year. Or so I have to film the entire trip. And obviously I never watched any of it back, but like I still have all those tapes. <laughs> and then as I got into like high school, another camera that I sometimes be able to take that my dad had again at his office because he did speech therapy. So he would film his clients for sessions and things like that. So he had this Sony 
TRV 900, which was like a three CCD camera. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is, you know, cinematic quality. And I started filming. That was like <laughs> a lot of the skateboarding, music video, school projects, just doing like jackass kind of stunts and like pre jackass days. But we would just go to the mall and like prank people. And that was basically my childhood was like filming us just doing stupid things. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually my first actual like camera that I legit bought for myself when I was old enough to get a camera was the DVX 100 mini DV camera. That was like right before it flipped to DSLRs and everyone using Canon 5Ds and all that. Many cameras since then, but those were the first few. Yeah, that just kind of brought to mind because you're a little bit older than me and you had the transition between like VHS tapes and mini DV and then digital so that all happened. So you had to kind of learn the different mediums, huh? It, it was pretty organic, I think, for me, because the VHS stuff, like that's when I was like really young. And that was more just like screwing around. But once I actually started using a camera and was old enough, like that was more of the mini DV days. And that was only a few years between that and then the 5D thing hitting. But I don't know, like that part of it wasn't all that different. Like, for example, editing software, all that was the same, like editing techniques. I was still like I learned on like technically Premiere first, like Premiere 1.0 or whatever. I probably had bootlegged and then, you know, Final Cut I got access to and then, you know, kind of went from there. But really the only difference in filming, let's say on a DSLR was, well, there were two things. There was like there was a period when people were actually using these like 35 millimeter adapters to put a real cinema lens on like a camcorder, which was just like horrible. Um, and I only did that once or twice. <laughs> so there was that. Yeah. And then there was like digitizing the tapes. So when you shot, you actually had to like sit there in real time and wait for them to capture on the computer. But other than that, like it really wasn't that different. And I was still very much at the onset of my career, just because I started shooting with stuff so young that by the time I was actually like an age to be professional, like when I was, you know, 24, 25, it was already into like DSLRs and stuff by then. So thankfully the shift didn't happen like later in life when I was like totally not able to like navigate it, but it happened quick enough that it was a pretty easy transition. And if anything, I was like, this is great. It just makes my life so much easier faster, you just get better results. And that's only continuing now. It's still what we're seeing now is is really just a continuation and an echo of like what started back in, I don't know, 2009 or 10 or whatever. And I got to ask if your parents were supportive and how they viewed you and your passion of filmmaking. Yeah, very supportive. Like I think in retrospect, I had a good balance because I think that the benefit really was that they weren't plugged into the industry. So there wasn't like some path I felt like I had to follow and they weren't, you know, leading me into doing any of this stuff. But if they saw I was naturally interested in something, then they were generally like, okay, great, you know, go follow that. At the same time, you know, they were, they're realistic. And like I said, they didn't come from that world. So I think for me, it was actually kind of a good balance of knowing that like they would support what I was doing, at least in terms of they would always be excited if I made a film, got something screened somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. There was never really doubts placed in my mind, which a lot of people have. And I didn't realize this at the time, but like, you know, a lot of people 
they're in their family, you know, they're told like, try it for a year. If it doesn't work, then like you better go back to school. And it was never really like that. Maybe if I had really failed miserably early on, it would have like become like that. But, but it was very much like, no, just try it. If that's what you're interested in, then just do it and educate yourself on it the best you can. And that was sort of it, but it was more hands off than anything. So like the support didn't necessarily come from like, oh, we're going to go and buy you a red camera or we're going to, you know, <laughs> send you to film school in LA when you're 18 and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was like, you know, we're going to be hands off. And if we trust that if you want to do it, you're going to figure out your way sort of thing. So yeah, I do think that that was really helpful. That's cool. I mean, same with me. My parents were just kind of like, they didn't know too much about the film industry and all that, but they're like, if you're passionate about it, then just go for it and see what happens. I think that's the way to go. And that like now I have kids, which is a recent thing, you know, like five years ago, I had zero kids. Now I have two. And, and I think about things very differently now. And, and like, that's how I would hope to be with my kid. I wouldn't want either of them to go into, let's say, film just because like I'm in it or because they have access to it somehow now because of where they live. But if they wanted to go into it, great. If they want to go into something else, great. It's like we're all different people. And I think trying to force our beliefs of like what your career should be, what you should focus on, what's safe versus what's not, especially that is like ridiculous. Because when I hear, you know, other people's stories about their parents saying like, oh, go into these like very like safe industries or jobs. And it's like, nothing is really safe. We like to make ourselves believe that there's some sort of like path that would give us like a hundred percent stability, but there's not like you could work in the most traditional job at a company and, and be there for 30 years and nothing can change. And then you could get fired and not get your severance or the company could go under or every <laughs> yeah. scenario comes with risk. Um, so if you could fail anyway, like why not at least fail doing the thing that you want to do as opposed to the thing that somebody else tells you to do. And we've seen that so much, not necessarily just in the film industry, but tech and other industries the last few years, a lot of jobs that are now getting disrupted in huge ways were the exact jobs that people were like, oh, go into those fields because that'll be safe. And now people are getting fired by the tens of thousands from tech companies because... And robots are taking over, taking their jobs. Exactly, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, like a lot of blue collar jobs that people were turned away from are actually like more lucrative than ever. So you never really know what yeah. path is going to work. So I think you always have to just follow your passion as cheesy as that sounds. That that's kind of the only way to do it. Yeah. So you mentioned Ace Ventura. I want to know if there's any other films that blew your mind growing up and were like really formative during your early years. Okay. So Ace Ventura, like when I was that age, when I was like 10 and I hadn't seen anything like that was the movie. And then all the Jim Carrey movies, like the mask, dumb and dumber, like as a kid, that was where I was first like excited by filmmaking. I think the next moment was when I was like 14, 15, and I was in the video store when there was like still Blockbuster and we we're like trying to find a movie, you know, rent with my friends or whatever. And we we're like, what's this crazy case with like the eye on it? It was Requiem for a Dream and we rented oh, it. And I was like, oh my, I didn't know like that kind of movie existed. And that still like probably like more than any movie, the one where I was like, oh, this changed it from like, I just like movies to like, I want to make films, not necessarily because I wanted to make a film like that, but because that movie showed me 
a movie could be anything like it could completely blow away like any preconceived notion of what I had seen before and do all these like crazy, dark, mind blowing things and and it still be super entertaining. And I was like, this is insane. And then around that high school period, like in my kind of formative years, I guess, in that sense where, yeah, those sort of movies are like Fight Club, obviously was a big one. And then I got into Fincher stuff. So Seven, Memento uh, was huge. You know, we all loved that in high school. And like a lot of the filmmakers that today are at the pinnacle of their careers, Aronofsky or, you know, whoever, you know, Nolan, Tarantino is obviously was successful then but he's like bigger than ever still so like all those filmmakers were still kind of in their earlier stage when i was in high school so a lot of them were like super influential and and many of them are are still influential so i'm sure i could think of others but yeah requiem is (laughs) definitely up there do you have a favorite director you mentioned a few like for a while i probably would have said someone like aronofsky because i felt like he makes the type of movies not necessarily requiem but the wrestler black swan like he's made movies where i've just like really connected to them and but i don't know i mean there's so many filmmakers that i admire for different reasons and like for example like cassavetes you know i love his approach to working just off the cuff cinema verite you know the way he would work with actors in his own home and real locations and like be resourceful but then come out with these like emotionally deep movies that a studio could never come up with i love that he could do that i love that fincher like his control of the camera and of mood and texture it's like he could take the simplest idea and story and just make it feel like so present and so intense yeah you go down the list there's like older french new wave filmmakers or there's bergman or there's newer filmmakers that experiment. Everyone always talks obviously about Francis Ford Coppola, but Sophia Coppola, I loved her films like Virgin Suicides and when she did uh, Somewhere, like those sort of movies. So I guess the, the one other I should mention now is Hitchcock. Like I love Hitchcock, but I haven't seen all of his movies. He has like a million um, and there's probably bigger <laughs> Hitchcock fans than mine. But, but again, it's just like whenever I see his stuff, it's like, I feel like I get where it's coming from. I guess there's like a lot that I just mentioned, but those are full of the ones I guess. No, that's great. That's great. It's kind of funny that um, my favorite filmmaker is probably David Lynch, but I don't really like his movies. Uh, (laughs) No, but I just love the way he talks about film and I've watched so many of his interviews and it's just weird. It's like, I don't really connect with his movies too much. I like some of them, but like just the way he talks about film and the way he gets his ideas and um, writing from the heart and treating your crew members like family and all this stuff. I'm like, I love his approach to filmmaking. And I also love Spielberg as well. Yeah. For me, there's not one filmmaker that encapsulates everything. No, and I think that's good. I think that that is like an evolution as a filmmaker. So I think when you first start, you're like, oh, I'm going to be the next James Cameron or I'm going to be the next. But then nobody's going to be the next anybody. Uh, and nobody will also be the next you. So it's about like, how do you be the best filmmaking version of yourself and tap into the things that you can do that other people can't. And that's something that I think about a lot in, in basically flipping the script on like, 
let's not think about our careers from the standpoint of like, I don't write dialogue like Aaron Sorkin or like, I don't move the camera like Tarantino or I don't blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what do you do? Like, what are the things that you do, even as an amateur filmmaker that those filmmakers don't do or can't do? Like, what perspectives do you have that they don't have? What stories do you want to tell that they can't tell? Like all of us, like just because somebody makes more money or has been established or is a celebrity filmmaker, that does not mean that they necessarily have better ideas or more valuable ideas than what you have when you're starting out. It's just a matter of they found a way to tap into that and connect it and be true to themselves, just like you should be, you know, to yourself as a filmmaker. So I try to remind myself of that, you know, whenever I can. Yeah. Let's talk about how you got into the industry and moving to LA. And also I want to hear about the decision not to go to film school. I'm not against it. First of all, like I'm only against anything that you do where you think like that's going to be the solution. Like I'm going to go to school. The golden ticket. Yeah. Like no matter if we're talking about school or something else. So like I think there's huge benefits to going to film school that I didn't get in terms of like building a network, getting access to gear early on and watching a ton of movies. Like I had to do my own film school and watch like a million, you know, movies from all the different film movements and things like that to try to understand because nobody taught me that stuff or YouTube videos, you know, like that's how I learned. But I guess why I didn't go to film school at the time, like I said, I'd done some acting. I had asked some like directors that I'd met in high school just while I was like on commercials and things for advice. And one of them said, if you don't want to go to film school, don't, you don't have to maybe study something else and bring that to it. And that kind of stuck with me. So I was always also really interested in psychology. I didn't necessarily want to be a psychologist, but I could imagine like in some other universe that maybe I would be one just because I really liked kind of thinking and almost like philosophizing on like the human brain and how people think. And, you know, and I would read Freud's like interpretation of dreams in high school and stuff like that. And so I studied psychology and while I studied it, I just kept making films. I kept freelancing. So for me, there's like no point of actually breaking in. It's just this like very, very gradual thing where I have no perspective on like where I am in the industry, not in the industry. Like, I don't really know. I kind of don't really care. Like I I basically just, (laughs) I'm trying to do the best I can. So yeah, I was shooting stuff like in when I was studying university, whatever, $200 jobs, like, Hey, we need someone to film this like local commercial or whatever uh, for like six hours, like those sort of jobs. And then once I graduated and I actually had an apartment for the first time and I was like, had to pay my own way for like rent and all this stuff. And I just started going on Craigslist and just applying anything that would pay me to shoot or edit. I would just wake up every morning and just apply, apply, apply. I found um, some decent enough stuff and that got me by that helped me pay the bills and grow my business over the years when I was still living in Toronto. So from age probably 22 to like 27, 28, when I moved here, I basically spent those five, six years just building my business. So trying to get onto whatever set I could build a portfolio um, and then start this small production company where I was, you know, I actually had quite a few clients in Toronto. And for example, the shopping channel there, which is like, uh, I guess, HSN here, we had a contract with them where we were doing B-roll. So whenever they had products on air, my company would go and shoot all the inserts and beauty shots of their products. So I had a good amount of 
clients that sort of organically built up over the years. But I always wanted to be in LA, even before I was into filmmaking, just as a kid, six years old, and, and just would see LA on TV. And I was like, this looks amazing, warm and palm trees and people are surfing and making movies and all these things. And I went on a couple of trips uh, as a teenager to LA and to San Francisco once just to visit. And and yeah, I really just always wanted to be here. So if it was easier for me to move here, I would have moved a lot earlier. But being Canadian, now I'm a US citizen, but I had to do L1 visa, which is an artist visa. Actually, first I was on a student visa and I came down for a few months. Then I came back on an O1 visa and had to get a green card a few years later and then had to get uh, citizenship or chose to get it. So that would finally be done. But yeah, like I very much came down here after I already had clients and things kind of set up in Toronto. And that was kind of mandatory for me because otherwise I wouldn't have had any way to really get down here. Like I, I needed a body of work to even get a visa just to be allowed to work uh, in the States. So it was a long process, but I finally got down here. And then, yeah, I mean, I had to cut ties, unfortunately, with a lot of producers and collaborators from Toronto because I wasn't there anymore. But it was you know a risk I was willing to take to sort of you know, hopefully level up and be able to do things on a, a bigger level, you know, out here. So yeah, I guess that's kind of what brought me out here in the first place. Yeah, that's great. And then, so I got a question for you. What do you look for in a crew member? Because obviously filmmaking is a very collaborative endeavor. And if you choose the right people, it can go great. And if you got the wrong people, it's really not going to work. That's a really great question. And I'd say it's the same thing I look for even in cast outside of like the specific talent. So if you're casting an actor or casting, let's say a crew member, like a DP, obviously there's the talent component, like how skilled are they in camera or in performance or whatever the thing is. And, and that kind of goes without saying we all have our barometer for what that is and our own personal subjective taste. And we can judge people based on that. But separate from that, the main thing I look for is like, is this somebody who is going to enhance the creative process and make it better? Or is this someone that's going to detract from it? And somebody may be a really talented DP or a really talented technician, like a DIT or something. Thing. But if they have a bad attitude or if they are somebody that is, you know, too big for our production or they feel that way, I don't really want those people on the set because uh, I've learned the hard way that it's really not about having the most experienced or the most like, quote, talented person on the set, although those things can certainly help. But it's more important to have the best team players on set who get what you're doing, especially on a micro budget production. They're not just there you know, for a paycheck because the paycheck is very little. Um, so if that's why they're there, they're going to be pissed off pretty quickly, probably. So, you know, I want people who I would want to just hang out with and talk about movies. And if those are the same people that can be on set and they're talented, you know, hopefully, and they're bringing some creativity to the table. That's great. And that doesn't mean surrounding myself with people who are going to say yes to everything I do, because I do want people to have different ideas and push back and, and, you know, challenge me as well. Um, but I just want it to be done in a way that's collaborative, just as if I give feedback to somebody, I want to kind of strengthen them with the feedback as opposed to, you know, create a, a negative effect. So yeah, just 
basic stuff like are people easy to talk to? Do they respect my time? Like if I say, hey, I'm busy this weekend, but I'd love to talk on Monday. You know, I have family stuff going on or whatever. If they keep texting me incessantly, I'll probably have to (laughs) think twice about that. You know, like those sort of soft skills almost matter more than anything to me at least. So yeah, I guess that's definitely is what comes to mind when you ask it. Yeah. And then where do you get your screenwriting inspiration? And also, have you written any parts of yourself into your characters? Well, the screenwriting inspiration probably comes from more of a mood than anything. So I don't know, like sometimes I will either not necessarily watch a film, but I might read a book or see a piece of art or most commonly listen to a piece of music, like whether classical or a score or even just something contemporary. And I'm like, oh, that's cinematic. Like that triggers something in me that is a feeling that I want to explore. And then it usually starts from that emotional standpoint. So like, uh, you know, with my most recent film, I was just thinking about, I have this son who's two and a half years old and he's only going to be this age once. And it's so hard to film with two and a half year olds, but I have one and I have this sort of new emotional charge that I didn't have a few years ago because I'm seeing life through this completely different perspective. And I want to kind of bottle that up somehow. And the result was making this film where he was in the movie, not in the whole movie, but he booked ends it. So he's in like the opening and the closing and peppered in between a little bit. And it was not just like opportunistic that, okay, I can have a child actor in my movie and it'll add production value. (laughs) But uh, the bigger part of it was, you know, this is something that's true to my life. Like, why wouldn't I explore this idea or like emotional feeling that I have right now? And that sort of goes to your other question of, do you put yourself into your movies and how personal are they? I'm not intentionally trying to be personal, but I think we're all personal with our own work. It's just, we can't help it. Even if we try to tell a story about a culture or an alien life form or something that's totally separate from our own, we're still going to come into it with our perspectives of how we see the world and, and whatever. So, you know, now when I look at things back, I can, in retrospect, say like, oh, I see these like things I was kind of working out in my mind in those early films I made, but I never see it in the moment because I'm not conscious of it. I do have one film that I'd like to make that is a little bit more like traditionally personal because it's sort of in that mid 90s vein of, you know, I've known if you've seen that film by Jonah Hill, but yeah, it's yeah. very much like based on experiences that I've had in my life and would tie in with like a lot of music that I find really interesting and stuff like that. But even then I would want to take it out of my, you know, I don't want it to be so, so personal that it ostracizes people, you know? So I don't know. That's a great question because <laughs> I, I do wrestle with that a lot. Yeah. I, myself, I always write from a very personal place and, you know, changing the names of characters and things and whatever is always a a safe way to do it. But if you can kind of put your life as like an allegory onto film, it's, I don't know, there's something really special about it, I think. Yeah. And I forget who it was that said this recently, but I read someone, I think he was talking about how one piece of art will never encapsulate any artist in their entirety, but maybe their entire body of work will come close because we're always changing. Like Mm. the art that we make today isn't who we were five years ago. It's not who we will be five years from now. So like we make something now, it's a little time capsule. It represents a certain state of being in this present moment. 
but it's not an absolute thing. And I think when we think in absolute terms and we're like, oh, we have one chance to make a movie. So I have to put everything of me in that movie. It's got to be my personality and my story and my perspective and my friends and whatever. And then everything gets jammed into one thing and, and it's a mess. And if, you know, the better way I think is to just keep making stuff, keep letting yourself get expressed organically through the work. And then eventually your story without even trying to like your personality, your story, your influences, like those will just be there across the body of work. I think many of my favorite artists, certainly I can look at their body of work and see like, oh, I can piece together who this person is not by watching one film, but probably by watching like 10 of their movies. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. So let's talk about your feature films. So you want to talk about the first two features, Shadows on the Road and Psychosynthesis, and maybe specifically just kind of what made you pull the trigger and go for it with those two micro budget films? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll start with Shadows on the Road. So I had tried to make a couple of other features before that. Um, that was my first feature actually like finished and released. I did finish a feature length film several years earlier when I was still living in Toronto called Footsteps, but I never released it because A, I didn't really know how and B, I just felt like it wasn't totally representative of kind of where I was at as a filmmaker. I went and tried to shoot another movie, didn't really work out. And then I moved to LA. So I was kind of starting fresh, was here for a couple of years. And at first when I moved here, I was kind of doing the traditional thing of meeting with people and trying to get a line producer to break down a script and get money and whatever. And I learned very quickly that that's just not going to be a path I want to explore, at least right then. I wanted to just make something. So yeah, I went to like a restaurant with my wife and I was like, you know what? I want to make a movie. I've been saying this for like two years uh, or more than that. But like since we moved, let's just like figure something out. She at the time was able to help me work on it. And we sat there at a restaurant, like outlined this story that could be done on a micro budget, very, very bare bones. And it was less about like, oh, I've had this idea for 20 years that I've been dying to make. It was more about like, I just need to make a film, a full length film so I can cut my teeth, uh, so I can learn from the process, so I can express some of this creativity and find new ways to make films. And I knew kind of instinctively right away, a micro budget film isn't the kind of movie where you need to take 10 years to develop this script and, you know, kind of do it in that Hollywood way. Um, you can find it a little bit. You can be more of a documentarian. So that's sort of what I did. I whipped up a script very quickly and then we just sort of went with it. It was an experiment. And of course, you know, there's things I would have done differently and things that like I learned from it, but that was the whole point. And, you know, that film ended up doing decently on festivals. You know, it's not premiering at Sundance, but, you know, we got to play at a really good festival here in LA and premiere at the Chinese theater in LA. And it ended up like ranking quite high on iTunes and making its money back at small budget pretty quickly. But anyway, so then I made that. And then like right around the time it was premiering, I just decided I better get another movie off quickly because I don't want this to be another like five, six years. And I had this like totally separate idea that was more of like a concrete idea I've heard these stories about these people that have had heart transplants and then their lives were like completely changed after like they fell in love with a different person or they started eating different food. 
And I was like, oh, that'd be a cool concept for a movie. So I put that one together, shot it like around the same budget level, but did it very differently than Shadows on the Road. So this movie was called Psychosynthesis. We shot in like two locations, nine days, like really quick back to back, totally different shooting style than I was used to. And that was a really fun experiment too, and dipped into genre territory and kind of let me play around with that a little bit. But um, again, learned a lot, would do a lot differently on the next one which is exactly what I did. So then, so Psychosynthesis was released and then I was ready for another film. Pandemic hits, trying to figure out like, how do I navigate this? Do I make another film now? Do I wait? Eventually decided, yeah, I'm going to make a film and I'm going to make it as a one-person crew because it's probably the only time in my life I'll actually be able to do something this experimental because I also have bigger budget projects also on the horizon. So I ended up making this movie with no crew, shot over the course of a year in shooting blocks of anywhere from one to three days with sometimes a month or two off in between. And again, the idea was like, try something different, try to learn something new. And this was the most eye-opening film by far that I've done in terms of like, wow, look at what is possible with like no crew. Uh, not that I don't like working with a crew, but if you don't have one or if you want to make a film this way, like you can make an actual feature film that looks really solid. And in my opinion, is better than any film that I've made. And it didn't feel like we were making a film when we were making it. It just felt like three, four people hanging out, talking about movies and whipping out a camera and having fun. And that resulted in one of the more rewarding experiences and it led indirectly to my new film Teacher's Pet which is financed and already has distribution in place and that one is going to be shot this summer here again in LA and then hopefully released early next year I'm guessing so yeah so I mean that's sort of the gist of the features project so far and next I'll, I'll probably be looking to raise some money again for a slightly larger indie feature. But as always, it'll continue to be an experiment. Man, I love just your whole mindset with Disappearing Boy and being a one-man crew. It's pretty much just no excuses, right? No, I'm like, you're like, hey, I'm married, I've got kids, and I'm a one-man crew, and I'm making this film. You have no excuse, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, sometimes I talk about micro-budget filmmaking, and, and people will push back and say like, well, you can't make a micro-budget film and, and not exploit people. And I'm like, you totally can. Like the sets that I've been on that have been the most poorly run have usually been, unfortunately, the biggest sets where there is no accountability. Nobody really knows who's in charge. And people are actually getting exploited because there's big names involved and they have the leverage to do that. On my sets, like even if there is a crew, it's like six or seven of us People are getting paid. They're having fun. I'm trying to keep the shoot days short. So I think people have this misconception that on a micro budget production, sure, like some of them are very poorly run, no question. But money is not necessarily correlated to how well or poorly run your set is. I could give plenty of examples of horribly run sets with millions and millions of dollars behind them. So I always admired someone like Terrence Malick because he gets money obviously to make his movies and real money, but he still does them in his way with like natural light and small crews. And not that everyone has to work like him or like me, but I do think that everyone should find what works for them and not feel like they have to box themselves into kind of one paradigm. Yeah. And so you mentioned Disappearing Boy being amidst COVID. I wanted to know what the biggest 
obstacles or challenges for some of these films have been? And if there's been any that have, you know, really stuck out in your mind in making these films? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always low moments. On this one, I had probably the fewest low moments because of the way that we did it. And because for the first time in my life, I actually understood how I should be approaching the creative process with way less rigidity, way less expectation, and more of just playful fun. Who cares what happens? This expression I always love, like care enough not to care. Like obviously you don't want to not care about your movie. You don't want to not go the extra mile to make it the best it can be. But you also have to realize like this is a movie. This is not life or death. This is not horrible (laughs) illness that you have if something goes wrong. Like thankfully this is something that can be solved. And in the worst case scenario that the movie falls apart, you're still alive. You can go make another movie like it's being able to approach it like that made it first of all it uh, helped me avoid a lot of disastrous situations because i was making decisions from the right place but then when issues would come up they just didn't feel like as big of a deal so like in contrast on shadows on the road and i've talked about this maybe once or twice on like my own podcast that was very different because even though i was trying to be experimental and playful in a way with it i was also approaching it with like, oh, this is like the first feature I'm going to release. So like, it has to be good. And if this goes wrong, or if like one actor has to reschedule one day, I'm like, is the whole thing going to fall apart? And I stressed myself out so much to the point that I basically took almost six months off of work when I finished it because I was having like health issues. I was tired all the time. I kept getting sick. Like I like completely messed myself up from that experience. And part of like, you know, my journey, honestly, from that point on was if I want to make film, like I decided at a certain point, like I'm not going to be successful unless I find a way to consistently make films year after year and get better and reach more people with them. But in order to sustain that, it's not about burning myself out on one or two films. It's about pacing myself and approaching it in the right way. So I put my health first um, and now basically mentally train and prepare and even physically for a production as if my life depends on it from the health perspective, because I know that if I keep making movies and I get sick and I feel beat down every time, I'm just going to stop and I don't want to stop. So I'm happy to have 10 hour days instead of 12. I'd rather have an extended lunch break. I'll pay the extra money for good food so we don't have to eat garbage pizza and chips every day. We're all getting sick and feeling like crap, you know? So like those (laughs) sort of things matter so much to me. And even just when I'm not on set, like prioritizing health and just my own lifestyle and just making sure I'm like exercising and like all the stuff that we should all be doing anyway. Like I wasn't doing that stuff before and and I paid the price. So for me, that was probably like one of the lower moments in my career was just that feeling of like, wow, I just completely beat myself into the ground with this film. And like, what for? Like, Sure, like it's an indie film. It got done. It would have got done either way. It would have been just as good if I didn't stress the whole time. So like probably it would have been better, you know, so like what's the point? Yeah, well, it sounds like you've found a way to rise above it and start thinking more strategically, thinking a few steps ahead and 
figuring out how to do this sustainably and healthily for the long term, basically. Totally. The other thing that's helped me, I think, is just my interest and background in having my own businesses and understanding how to prioritize things and how to look at efficiencies and things like that. Most sets, again, even with millions of dollars, are so poorly run. Most executive level people from an outside corporation would probably go to a set and say, like, what are these people doing? They're, this is completely non-streamlined, inefficient. There's money wasted left, right, and center. And yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's about like, how do I maximize efficiency on these productions, both in terms of my own output and everybody else's on set? And if I can figure out how to run a business that generates a substantial amount of revenue and only takes me half a day a week, let's say, to run, then like, why can't I figure out how to run a set where we get just as much done in a 10-hour day as we would in a 12, or just as much in a six-hour day as in a 12-hour day, because there's so much waste and there's so much inefficiency that it just kills me. And when I see it on big sets, I'm just like, there could be thousands of indie films funded for the amount of money that's just wasted on these productions, let alone the money they actually had to spend. So yeah, so I think that has coalesced in my mind and sort of informed my approach. So coming up on the end of uh, this conversation here, I want to share with you when I finished Space Waves and I was able to show it to my old college professor, Dean, it was a really meaningful moment, you know, to be able to show my teacher and him be proud of me and say that, you know, you really captured a time and a place with this film. And I want to know if for you, if you've had any really meaningful moments showing your films to someone. Hmm, That's a great question. I... I guess I've had them, but not in that way. Like I've had some experiences, I guess, similar to yours where like I've gone back to my high school, they've asked me to come back and like do little guest speaking and things like that. And that feels nice, especially because in high school, like I'm just the punk kid running around like with blue hair and probably nobody thought I was going to do anything. So it was sort of, you know, those moments are definitely fun. But honestly, a lot of the time it's... uh It sounds like maybe, again, like a cheesy thing to say, but it's the internal gratification is the only thing that I really pay attention to anymore because, yes, I love to have someone say, oh, we saw your film and we loved it. But I know that no matter if someone says they love my stuff or they hate my stuff or they're happy about it or they're not, it's not what the truth is. You know, like I could make a really good film and someone could watch it and hate it. And they could still tell me that they liked it or I could make a bad film and someone could lie and say they loved it. Right. So it's like the only (laughs) thing that I really pay attention to anymore, like I said, is like, how do I feel? And I finished movies that I've worked on for like a year or two and like not had this feeling. And that sucks. But like when I do have that feeling of accomplishment, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't need any external validation because I know what I did I know that I exceeded what I thought I was capable of doing. And that's all I can hope for because someone else may appreciate that. Someone may not. And even if they say they do, again, I don't know if they're being truthful. So like all I can do is almost like find ways to hopefully look at my own work objectively and once in a while stop to sort of pat myself on the back because I'm the only one that knows what went into this stuff and how hard it was. And I guess. Yeah, yeah. I really like what you said about the internal gratification of making the film, you know, because at the end of the day, it has to be something that you truly love doing. And um, if you're miserable while making films the whole time, it's like you really need to reassess your priorities and, and why you're doing it. 
But yeah, now we're going to get into just asking the classic question of what advice do you have for somebody making their first feature film? Yeah. So I think my advice would be, and again, specifically to lower budget filmmakers, because most people making their first movie are probably hopefully working on a low budget so they can just start doing it and start experimenting. But the biggest advice I would have is just know that it's not your only movie or it doesn't have to be your only movie. Because if you go in and you think this is the only chance I get, this is my only at bat, if I don't hit a home run with this, then I'm screwed, then that is going to put so much pressure unnecessarily on that project and on your process that first of all, it will most likely have the opposite effect of what you're intending. And it'll actually make it way harder to make a good movie because you won't see opportunities when they're there and you'll blow problems out of proportion instead of looking for solutions uh, because everything's going to feel like it has this heavy weight to it. But also, yeah, when you're done, it's just not going to feel like whatever the movie turns out to be good or bad, it's not going to feel like it was this rewarding and gratifying process. So I do think that going in and taking the pressure off and letting yourself be okay with failure. And again, that does not mean you go in and you don't try to make it the best it can be or try to give it 110%. But that does mean that you give yourself a break if a scene didn't go right or you can't quite get something written exactly the way you want. So you workshop it with the actors instead of beating it to death on the page. Like just that mentality of just knowing this is the first of many, many steps. Even if this step is going to take me one to two years to finish, I have to pace myself because career filmmaking isn't about making one film and then the floodgates open to Hollywood and the celebrity and riches. It's about making films for the rest of your life. So try not to put so much pressure on yourself or the film or your team, because again, it's only antithetical to kind of the creative process. And I think what would probably be best for your movie, but at the same time, do go and make those movies and make the films even before you're ready, because some people might not want to make films forever and that's perfectly okay. But a lot of those people also spend 10 or 15 years thinking about whether or not they should make a film. And then they finally make one. And if they decide they don't want to go into filmmaking, it probably would have been better for them to discover that much earlier, right? So I think we all have the ability to make films. We should make a movie with whatever means we have. Small, big, medium, doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter the camera, just shoot something so you know if it's for you. And if it is for you, then keep approaching each movie movie with that same sort of lack of pressure, hopefully, and find a way to do it your way. And I think anyone can build a career as a filmmaker if they have that long-term mentality. Yeah, man, that's awesome. So how can people connect with you, Noam? Yeah. So people can find me on my blog, uh, noamkroll.com. It's spelled N-O-A-M-K-R-O-L-L.com. And if you do noamkroll.com slash newsletter, you can sign up for my newsletter where I share usually new articles or behind the scenes into my projects, actionable tips and advice, that sort of thing for filmmakers. So that's really the hub of it. And then I'm also at Noam Kroll on Instagram and Twitter. And you could find my podcast, Show Don't Tell, on Apple Podcasts podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. But again, I just want to thank you as well. This was so great. You asked so many great questions and um, 
yeah, I appreciate you having me on and, and letting me ramble a little bit here. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. And stay in touch. Um, at some point, I'd love to have you back on too and keep in the loop about everything that you've got going on. Uh, I can't remember if you're working on non-filmmaking stuff now or what we talked about last time. But yeah, what do you have kind of coming up? Now? Yeah, I'm just I'm just working on developing my podcast right now. And then I'm also writing and trying to get a second feature going. But it's tough because we kind of set the bar at a certain level with Space Waves yeah. um, financially and just the way we did everything. So now I'm trying to figure out how to do a second movie now that the playing field has changed, you know, because we're not students anymore. We're not borrowing the film school's equipment or this or that, you know, it's like things have changed. So I, now I need to find the new perfect storm of like, what are the opportunities and resources and things I have available to me now yeah. uh, to get another movie going. So so yeah, we'll see. But um, yeah, I will stay in touch with you about it. Yeah, let and, me know um, how it goes. And even if you just want to bounce ideas, yeah. like I'm always happy to, like this is what I think about 24 hours a day. So yeah, right. whatever questions, ideas, if anything comes up and as you get closer, like developing it, if there's yeah anything I can do to pitch in, just keep me posted and... And uh, yeah, no rush on this. Whenever you decide to post it, just let me know and I'll share it as well. And hopefully you get some yeah. more eyes on it. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot too. Yeah. I'll speak to you soon for sure. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you're new to this podcast, I just want you to know the main theme of this podcast is a comedy show. So if you could use a laugh, I recommend checking out any of my previous episodes. Pro tip, episode 10 is sure to put a smile on your face. Lastly, I ask that you subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Spencer Whiteout to join the party. As always, stay tuned, stay hyped. That's a wrap. And that's it.